0: The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndyke by R. Austin Freeman. Thorndyke is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time presenting The Man with the Nailed Shoes, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. I hope I'm not keeping you from your
1: clients, Jervis. Not at all. I was quite pleased to hear that you had made up your mind to visit for the weekend. Yes, my legal profession is going quite well, and I thought it was time to take a weekend and relax.
2: Well, this is the place to relax. The whole area around us here is called Sunder'sley Gap.
1: It was cut right out of the cliff and forms a narrow road directly to the shore below us. Ah, look at this beach. The sand stretches out for a considerable distance. Does no one come here, Jervis? Only during the vacation months. Ah, the only signs of life are those two sets of footprints made within the past several days.
2: several days, how can you tell?
1: (laughs) See how there's a line in the sand from the high tide? The prints were obviously made after the last high tide nearly a week ago. If they were made before that, they would have been washed out.
2: Well, it's obvious enough now that you've explained it to me. Both sets of footprints appear to be quite fresh and uh, made about the same
1: time. (laughs) Not at the same time, Jervis. The fisherman passed here probably within the hour, but the other man seems to have come from a boat certainly no less than four hours ago. He was probably fetching something heavy and returned through the gap.
2: Footprints have a very different meaning for you than for me.
1: I don't see how you reach those conclusions. <laughs> I suppose not. Although acquired by special study, the knowledge of footprints is of the greatest simplicity. I'll explain briefly for your benefit. Please do. I'm quite intrigued. All right, then, look at the first set. They should be the footprints of a giant, yet look at the length of the strides. That indicates a rather short man. The soles are massive and have no shoe nails holding them together. Yes, I see. Also, see how clumsy the tread is, as if the walker had wooden legs. We can safely infer high boots of thick, rigid leather. The only boot that can match that description would be a fisherman. That seems reasonable. Now look at the others. See how there's a double track? One coming from the sea, and the other going back out again. I can see that. Can you see the difference between them, Jervis? The returning ones are much deeper, and the stride is shorter. Thus, I would assume he carried something quite heavy as he returned to the sea. That makes sense. But how can you figure the times? (laughs) Think think of a timetable for the railroad. Certain trains overlap their times and routes, so you eliminate the options until you find the most suitable train for your needs. In the same manner, by knowing where and when the tides come and go, you know when the footprints were washed away. Given that, the fisherman walked past less than an hour ago, and the other man probably within the past 24 hours.
2: (laughs) I've never thought of it that way before, but I understand what you mean. Look over there, Thorndike. There's a group of men coming down the gap towards us. Hmm, a surgeon, a stretcher, two constables, and a police sergeant. Probably a body washed up on the shore. That's the other surgeon with them, Dr. Burroughs. Sort it of appears they won't be needing my services.
1: As I was saying, the study of footprints has always fascinated me. Did you know it is capable of a very systematic and scientific treatment? No, I didn't. Well, here now is a case in point. Do you see anything remarkable about those footprints over there? Mm, The waves have washed some away, but I, I can see that the heel was round and the prints are quite deep. There's a pretty constant science in determining the height of a person based on their stride. Thus, a long foot means a long leg. Tall man, a long stride. But here we have a long foot and a short stride. What do you make of that, Jervis? I
2: would say he was a much heavier man than either of us.
1: Perhaps he was unusually fat? Mm, That could be. Carrying a dead weight will shorten the stride, and fat is certainly a dead weight. Do we agree, then, that he was about, say, five feet ten and excessively fat? If you say so.
3: Stop there, gentlemen. I'll ask you not to walk around the body just now. It appears to be foul play and I don't want the footprints destroyed. What brings you down here, Dr. Jervis?
2: My friend and I were just out for an afternoon walk. Uh, may we observe from here, Sergeant Payne?
3: That should be fine, Doctor, but no closer. We've already got our local doctor looking this over.
1: Uh, much obliged, Sergeant. The hmm. deceased male, perhaps 35 years of age, is quite tall and frail looking, extremely thin, with a strangely peaceful expression on his face. Uh,
2: are you talking to me?
1: <laughs> no, no, just observing.
2: What do you think, Dr. Burroughs? Uh, it's a clear case of murder, Sergeant. There's a deep
3: knife wound above the heart. How long should you say he has been dead, Dr. Burroughs? Oh, twelve hours at least. He's quite cold and stiff. Twelve hours, eh? That would bring it to about six o'clock this
4: morning. I can say not less than twelve hours. It might have been considerably more.
3: Well, whatever the case, he seems to have made a desperate fight for his life. There's only one set of footprints besides his. I reckon there won't be much trouble finding the murderer. Did you see those unusual footprints he left behind?
4: Yes, it seems to be a laborer, judging by the hobnails in his shoes.
3: No, no, the foot is too small and those are not regular hobnails in the sole. I'd wager they're sporting shoes of some kind. Up to a certain point, it's pretty clear what happened here.
4: And and uh, what would that
3: be? The murderer must have known that Mr. Hearn, the deceased man, would be walking on the beach. He hid in the cliffs and then attacked and stabbed Mr. Hearn in the following struggle. Then he turned and went back up Shepherd's path behind us. And if you follow the tracks, you ought to be able to see where the murderer went. I'm afraid not. There are no marks on the path itself. The rock is too hard, and so is the ground above it, I fear. But I'll go over it carefully all the same.
4: Very good, very good. Are you finished with your observations and note-taking? I'd like to get the body back into town for more thorough examination. Yes, yes, of course. Don't mind me. Dr.
3: Jervison, friend, pleased to meet you. Have a good evening, gentlemen.
2: And a good one to you, Sergeant Payne.
1: Very smart officer, that man is. I should like to know what he wrote in his notebook. His account of the murder seemed reasonable. Uh, Yes, very reasonable, but there are several things that still puzzle me. Such as? Uh, I'd rather not say right now. I think I will take a few notes for my own information, starting with the ground the body lay on and the design of his boots. For what? The police sergeant has already done so. Uh, Perhaps, but he is not a medico-legal professional. I'm just observing for future reference. When I'm finished here, we may as well go back through Shepherd's Path. There may be traces of the murderer after all.
2: There's a police sergeant up ahead. He looks utterly confused.
3: What are you gentlemen doing up there?
2: On our way home. Any luck with finding
3: footprints? No. There were a few to begin with, but the further up the cliff I followed them, the more faint they became. The ground is very crumbly. Ah, indeed, we noticed. I shall have to track him down some other way. Is the deceased gentleman a native of this locality? Oh, no, sir. He's only been here about three weeks. It's a small village. We know everything that happens. Uh ah What was his business, then? Pleasure, I believe. Mr. Draper up at the Poplars was an old friend of his. I'm going to call on him now.
0: Hello! Hello!
3: That's Mr. Draper. I expect he hear the news. Is it true, Sergeant? About Mr. Hearn? There's a rumor that he was found dead on the beach. It's quite true, and what's worse is he was murdered. My God!
0: How did it happen? And when? Is there any clue to the murderer?
3: We can't say for certain. I was actually just coming up to call on you.
0: Call on me? What for?
3: We should like to know something about Mr. Hearn and you are the only person in the place who knew him.
0: Uh, I'm afraid I shan't be much help. He was only a casual acquaintance. Just tell me all you
3: know and we'll find out the rest.
0: I see. Yes, I expect you will. Well, you must come up tomorrow and we'll talk then. I'd rather come this evening. Not this evening. This affair has upset me. I couldn't give you the proper attention. I don't like pressing you, but time is precious.
3: Uh, They should bank up this end of Barker's Pond so people don't keep slipping on the mud. We'll have to go single file through here. Oh, very well.
1: What's the sergeant doing?
2: He motioned for us to step aside.
1: Look, Jervis, Mr. Draper's footprints appear to match those of our murderer. Mr. Draper, would you rather I talk with you tomorrow? Much rather, if you wouldn't mind.
3: In that case, as I've got a good deal to see to this evening, I'll leave you here and make my way
0: to the station. He was in hurry to leave. You and Dr. Jervis, I saw you coming out of Dr. Cooper's house yesterday, but I don't know your companion. This is a close friend of mine, Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike? Thorndike? The name seems familiar. Are you in the law? Yes, I specialize in medical legal practice. <sighs> then this horrible affair will interest you from a professional point of view. Were you present when my poor friend's body was found? No, we came up when they were removing it.
1: What do you know of the events? Not as much as we need to know, I'm afraid.
0: Hmm. Well, it's been quite nice chatting, gentlemen, but the path to my house is just up ahead. Have a good evening, Mr. Draper. Dr. Jervis, Dr. Thorndyke.
2: I thought you were going ahead while I settled business with the chemist.
1: I needed a few things.
2: So I see. Here, let me take the parcel.
1: Oh, really, thank you. But I can
2: manage. I insist. That's much heavier than it looks. You should have sent it along in a wheelbarrow.
1: <laughs> yes, perhaps. Only I don't wish to draw attention to my purchase or to give my address. What have you got? Oh, only a few things to help with my casual observations. Sergeant, I welcome you to my home.
2: What can I do for you this evening?
3: Well, sir, I've arrested Mr. Draper, but I wish it had been someone else. So does he, I expect. He's quite well liked in the village. The gentleman who is with you this evening is Dr. Thorndyke, the great expert, am I right? Indeed. Mr. Draper is very anxious for him to take up the defense. Do you think he would consent?
2: He seems very keen about the case, but I will ask him when he comes in. Thank
3: you, sir. I'll be glad enough to find that I'd made a mistake.
2: A mistake about what, Sergeant? There you are. What on earth is in that hamper that requires you to cradle it like an infant?
1: Oh, don't mind me. Sergeant Payne, what mistake? I was only saying that
3: I quite like Mr. Draper and wish this whole thing was a mistake. He asked me to come fetch you and see if you would take his defense.
1: I'll certainly come see the prisoner, but I cannot say for certain if I will take his defense.
0: Thank
3: you, sir. I'll go let Draper know right away.
0: You came, Dr. Thorndyke. And, Dr. Jervis, it's nice to see you as well. What can I do for you, Mr. Draper? Well, I'm confident you will be able to clear me, Dr. Thorndyke. And I promise that I shall not keep anything from you that you ought to know. Very well. By the way, I see you have changed your shoes. Yes, the sergeant took my only other pair. Something about comparing them with footprints. There can't be anything else like those here in Sundersley. I had them made in Edinburgh. Have you more than one pair? No, I have no other nailed boots. Oh, that's important. You have something to tell us that bears on this crime? Uh, Am I right? Yes. I'm ashamed to say that I'm a discharged convict. Go on. I was a bank clerk when it happened. I was befriended by four young men who were avid gamblers, and I soon learned the game. Before I knew it, I found myself in debts I could not pay. Young and foolish, I gather. Yes, very. They discovered that I have the unfortunate gift of imitating handwriting and warned me to keep silent about it. One evening, Gisard suggested I do a scheme, with the promise that it would square away all of my current debts. Gisard? I presume he is one of the four? Yes. It was Gisard, Leach, Pitford, and the late Mr. Hearn. I was told to forge nearly a score of blank checks for various small amounts, and hand it over to Gisard. Someone altered the numbers into significant amounts, and I was soon discovered. You made a full confession, I gather, and were sent to prison? Yes. How did you know? You still show remorse, so I can only imagine how your conscience pricked you then. Gisard was arrested as well, but released for lack of evidence. After my release, I retired here with inherited wealth and a new name. Seven years, with no contact, and now they turn up again a month ago. Well, how did you happen to meet them again? I was ever in Eastwich, when I saw two men who strongly resembled Hearn and Gisard. I shrugged it off and went along my way. Later that day, I discovered a yacht with all four of them on board. Hearn recognized me, but I pretended not to see him. He told the others, I presume? Yes. The next day, I read in the paper about forgeries committed by men matching the description of the two men I saw in town, obvious to me as Hearn and Chizard. That afternoon, the four of them cornered me in the harbor and accused me of the forgeries. I denied them, of course. And did they follow you back to the village? They brought the yacht down to the harbor... Hearn followed me around like a shadow, begging me to take some jobs with them. Eventually, he rented a room in the village itself so he could keep an eye on me. Hmm, How did you react to that? I was angry at first, but despite my better judgment, I rekindled our old friendship, even allowing myself to be kidnapped for a pleasant day of fishing at sea. In a moment of stupidity, I mentioned that I had seen their disguises in town, and their efforts to win me over redoubled. A few nights ago, Hearn made a startling proposition.
4: I'm tired of all this, Draper. Tired of what? All the uncertainty and risk we have been pulling scams and such. I I wish I could just be done with all of it and turn my life around like you did. Are you jesting? No, no, I'm completely serious. I've been dreading asking you, but I've made up my mind. I'll turn King's evidence on the others, provided...
0: Provided what? You're a wealthy
4: man. You can figure some way to provide an income for me while I get straightened out. What was that? What? That sound. It was a sneeze. Someone's watching us.
0: Then he hurried away. The next morning, Pitford called on the house and invited me to the yacht for a day of fishing. I agreed. As long as they let me off, when and where I chose. They agreed, and I was put ashore around ten in the evening. Hearn would have come along then, but the others said they needed to speak to him privately. That's the last I saw him. Hmm, Which way did you walk home? Through town, along the main road. And that is all you know about this affair? Absolutely all.
1: Well, then that's all for now. Dr. Jervis and I will take our leave for the evening and get started on this case.
0: Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. You won't say anything about me being in prison, will you?
1: Your secret is safe, unless it's vital to the case. You're placing your life in my hands, Mr. Draper, and you must leave me free to act as I think best. Dr. Burroughs... For a preliminary hearing, please
2: tell the court of your findings in the autopsy.
4: Oh, the cause of the death was penetrating wound to the chest, apparently inflicted with a large knife.
2: Was this injury alone sufficient to cause death? Oh, yes. Could the injury have been
4: self-inflicted? As far as the position of the nature of the wound, it would be possible. Thus, it must certainly have been homicide. Did you see the body before it was moved? Yes, it was lying on its back. The sand all around it was trampled as a fierce struggle had taken place.
2: Did you notice anything remarkable
4: about the footprints surrounding the body? Oh, I did. There were two sets. One, evidently the deceased, with circular rubber heels. The second, belonging to the murderer, were studded with nails in a most unusual manner. Please Explain. they formed a diamond shape across the soles and a cross shape on the heels have you ever seen shoes or boots with the nails arranged in this manner yes a pair I was told belonged to the accused appear to have the same pattern of the nails thank you and lastly sergeant Payne
2: we have already heard your testimony but I have one further question certainly Have you made any inquiries as to the movements of the accused on the night of the murder? I have. On
3: that night, the accused was alone in the house. Two men saw him in the town about ten o'clock, apparently walking in
2: the direction of Sundersley. We heard from Dr. Burroughs. Gisard Leach and Pitford, the fisherman, the police sergeant, and two others. But did you say anything in the poor man's defense? Not a word.
1: You surely did not expect me to cast my pearls of forensic learning before a coroner's jury. I expect that you would have something to say on behalf of your client. My dear Jervis, you don't seem to appreciate the need to wait patiently for the right moment.
2: Well, you've been waiting around for the right moment, your client has been found guilty of willful murder. And given the court's facts, I don't see how the jury could have reached any other conclusion.
1: Frankly, neither do I.
2: I wrote Dr. Cooper, whose practice I am covering. Oh, that's nice. I told him about the case. He replied and said that you are most welcome to use the house while he and the missus are away. Also, you're free to utilize any equipment you need
1: and can stay in the loft. Splendid. I've been admiring his lab the past few days. I shall move in immediately. Thank him profusely in your next letter, won't you? Now, it's five days until the trial and I have a lot to do. Don't be surprised, Jervis, if several of my colleagues drop in before them. Good day.
2: Thorndike! This house feels like a village square with everyone wandering around in it. Who are they?
0: And why are they here?
2: It makes it awful hard to concentrate with all kinds of people keep knocking at the door.
1: I did say I was expecting a few colleagues.
2: First, an inspector of the criminal investigation department. Now, a strange man shows up on the steps with a sailor's hammock and a trunk and says he's going to live up in the loft.
1: Oh, that's just Poulton, my laboratory assistant.
2: A laboratory assistant with a sailor's hammock?
1: Ah, Jervis, is there a reason you came upstairs?
2: The inspector would like to speak to you.
1: Oh, send him up, by all means. Dr. Thorndyke, you may begin your defense. Your Worship, I have requested Mr. Anstead to please conduct the questions.
5: Very well.
6: Dr. Thorndyke is my first witness. Please tell the court,
1: doctor, what you know of this case. As you heard Sergeant Payne testify for the prosecution, Dr. Jervis and I arrived just before the body was removed. We had been casually walking the beach, examining and hypothesizing about some footprints we found in the sand. And were any of your hypotheses correct? Just that a man appeared to have landed by boat, walked up the gap, and presently returned to the boat. When you reached the scene of the crime, what did you notice? Well, the footprints, naturally. The jury is well aware of the unusual print of the shoes. The folly of such a conspicuous pattern caused me to look at them more closely. To my surprise, I discovered that there had been no struggle and that the footprints had been made at different times. At different times? Yes, the interval between them may have been hours or seconds, but they were definitely made in succession. But how did you arrive at that fact? The deceased man's footprints never once stepped into those of the murderers. Don't you think that odd, if they were indeed in a life-and-death struggle, that they would be so careful where they stepped? Very true, Dr. Thorndike. Continue. The nailed shoes had a double path, but looking closely, I was astonished to discover they had been made by a man walking backwards. I followed the tracks hither and yon and searched around the cliffs, where the tracks now appeared to have vanished. What do you mean, appeared to have vanished? Well, I believe that after creating the misleading footprints, the murderer returned to the cliffs and climbed a rope to the top. Really? Continue, please. Well, that night, I cycled down to the shore with a supply of plaster of Paris and made several molds. From them, I have prepared plaster casts which reproduce the footprint itself. The first mold was made of a footprint leading from the boat to the gap. The second, a footprint described as those belonging to the deceased.
5: Described? The deceased was certainly there, and there were no other footprints.
1: Uh, for comparison's sake, I made a mold of my own footprint. "'Please note that the presumed footprints of the deceased are nearly twice as deep as mine, "'although he weighs nearly fifty pounds less.' "'This is very singular, but perhaps you can explain the discrepancy.' "'I think I can, but I should prefer to place all the facts before you first, Your Worship.'
5: "'Undoubtedly that would be better.
1: Pray proceed.' "'The length of stride puzzled me as well. "'I measured the steps carefully from heel to heel and found them only nineteen and a half inches.' "'How is that puzzling?' A man of Hearn's height would have an ordinary stride of about 36 inches. Walking with a stride of 19 and a half inches, he would look as if his legs were tied together. So I also made molds of the prints made by the nailed shoes. Here is a cast from the mold, and it shows very clearly that the man was walking backwards.
5: How does it show that?
1: Ah, several ways, Your Worship. The absence of the usual kickoff at the toe, the slight drag behind the heel, the undisturbed impression of the sole. These molds are accurate? Yes, and when we compare them, they demonstrate a very important fact. What is that? The prisoner's shoes did not make those footprints. Since I could not examine the prisoner's shoes, I made a mold from footprints I personally witnessed him make on the shore of Barker's Pond. These I compared with the ones taken from the sand. For ease of comparison, I have made transparent photographs of both sets of molds. They are both to the same scale. Now, please note that when we place the photograph of the prisoner's right shoe over that of the murderer's right shoe, and we hold the two superimposed photographs up to the light, we cannot make them match. Yes, I can see that plainly now. Although the exact same length, the shoes are different in shape. However, the most conclusive fact is the number of nails in the sole. The prisoner's right shoe has 40, but the murderer's 41.
6: Did you form any opinion as to the cause of
1: death? Yes, an overdose of morphia.
5: Have you forgotten the wound capable of causing instantaneous death?
1: Certainly not, Your Worship, and there's no doubt it was there. But when it was inflicted, the deceased had already been dead for close to half an hour.
5: This is incredible. But no doubt you can give your reasons for this amazing conclusion.
1: There are several facts, the most conclusive being the following. The weapon had partially divided both the aorta and the pulmonary artery, the main arteries of the body. Now, during life, these great vessels are full of blood at a high internal pressure, whereas after death, they become almost empty.
5: And what was the state of these arteries?
1: There was only the slightest oozing from some small veins, so that it is certain the wound was inflicted after death. Now, the presence of morphia I discovered by analyzing certain secretions from the body. To be sure, I sent the contents of the stomach to Professor Copeland for more exact examination.
5: Mr. Lansty, is the result of Professor Copeland's analysis known? The professor is here, your worship, and
6: will swear to having obtained over one grain of morphia from the contents of the stomach. In and of itself, this is a poisonous dose, but it represents only what was unabsorbed by the body. This indicates a very large quantity
5: had been ingested. Thank you. And now, Dr. Thorndyke. If you have given us all the facts, perhaps you will tell us what conclusions you have drawn from
1: them. The deceased died from a poisonous dose of morphia. His body was then taken by boat to the gap. The boat probably contained three men, one who stayed aboard, one who walked up the gap to the cliffs, and a third carried the body along the shore while wearing the deceased's shoes. And why is this significant? Well, it accounts for the great depth and short stride of the tracks. This man dumped the corpse, then trampled the sand in the neighborhood. Next, he removed the deceased shoes and put them back on the corpse and put on shoes he had brought along, shoes made to resemble drapers.
5: The one with 41 nails.
1: Ah, wearing those, he trampled the ground around the corpse before walking backwards to Shepherd's Path. Reaching it, he returned, still walking backwards to the cliff. There, his accomplice was waiting with a rope to haul him up. Yes, I see. He removed the nailed shoes, and his accomplice carried him on his back back to the boat to avoid leaving tracks of stocking feet.
5: But why should the man have climbed a rope up the cliff when he could have walked up the shepherd's path?
1: Well, that would have left a pair of tracks leading out of the bay without a corresponding set leading in. In such case, a smart police officer such as Sergeant Payne would have immediately considered landing from a boat.
5: Your explanation is highly ingenious, and it appears to cover all these remarkable facts... Have you anything more to tell us? I do not, Your Worship. Do you have any other witnesses, Mr. Anstey?
6: Yes, Your Worship. Jacob Gummer, please take the witness stand. Aye, sir. What is your occupation, Mr. Gummer?
4: A smackmaster's apprentice, but my master hired me out as a cabin boy and deckhand to Mr. Gisard.
6: Now, Mr. Gummer, do you remember the
4: prisoner coming on board the yacht? Oh, yes. Twice. The first time was about a month ago when he went for a sail with us. The second time was the night Mr. Hearn was murdered. Do you remember what sort of boots the prisoner was wearing the first time he came? Oh, they were shoes with a lot of nails in the soles. And I remember them because Mr. Jazard made him take them off and put on a canvas pair.
6: What was done with the nailed shoes? Mr. Gisard took them below to the cabin. And did Mr. Gisard come up on deck again directly? No, he stayed out of the cabin about ten minutes. Do you remember a parcel
4: being delivered on board from a London bootmaker? Oh, yes. The postman brought it four or five days after Mr. Draper had been on board. It was labeled Walker Brothers Boot and Shoemakers London. Mr. Gisard took a pair of shoes from it, but I never saw them again. And have you ever heard sounds of hammering on the yacht? Night after the parcel came, I heard someone hammering in the cabin. Sounded like a cobbler a hammering nails. Have you ever seen boot nails on the yacht? When I was a uh, clearing up the cabin the next morning, I found a hobnail on the floor in a corner by the locker.
6: Were you on board on the night that Mr. Hearn died?
4: Yes. I'd been ashore, but I had come aboard about half past
6: nine. Did you see Mr. Hearn
4: go ashore? I see Mr. Gizzard and Mr. Leech helping Mr. Hearn across the deck. Mr. Hearn looked as if he was a drunk. They got him into the boat, and Mr. Gisard says to me that they were putting Mr. Hearn ashore and that they were going fishing. And he said not to wait for them. Very well. Do you know anyone by the name of Poulton? Oh, yes. Tell us. What do you know about him? One day he'd come down to the yacht when the gentleman had gone ashore and offers me ten shillin' to let him see all the boots and shoes we got on board. I didn't see no harm, and then presently he nips off. And when he was gone, I looked over the shoes, and then I found there was a pair missing. They was an old pair of Mr. Gizzards, and what made him nick em is more than I can understand. Would you know those shoes if you saw them? Oh, yes, I should. Are these the pair? Ah, uh, y- yes. These are the ones that he stole. I think
6: that if your worship will compare these shoes with the last pair of molds, you will have no doubt that these are the shoes which made the footprints from the sea to Sundersley Gap
5: and back again. It is impossible to doubt it. Chazard's gone, the devil. No disrespect, your worship, but I've got a man to chase. Quiet, quiet! This remarkable and startling evidence brought by Dr. Thorndyke and the defense have proved not who the murderer is, but who it is not. Mr. Draper, I congratulate you on the skill and ingenuity of your legal advisers. You are cleared completely of suspicion and are hereby free to leave the court. Case dismissed.
0: The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndyke, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. In the cast where Dave Johnson is Dr. John Thorndyke, Roy Nessel as Jervis, Jamie Fry as Sergeant Payne, Michael O'Reilly as Mr. Draper, other parts played by Reed Thompson, and Joseph McGuire. I'm your announcer, Jason Lind. Edited by Jay Charles. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Recorded at KSVR Studios. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation. (laughs) ¶¶